Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jake Orasic, author of The Shenley Experiment. Jake Oresik, author of The Shenley Experiment, A Social History of Pittsburgh's First Public High School. What is so significant about Shenley High School that it deserves a book? That's a, that's a pretty good question. It was, it was a, lot more, a lot more significant than I realized when I started researching. That um, Shenley was, um, uh, present day viewers will, will remember it from from its contemporary era where it was a, a, an integrated, high, academically achieving magnet school in the city of Pittsburgh. Um, but it, it was, its history was really a lot more than that. So I, I traced it back 150 years to Central High, its, its predecessor school, which was the first public high school in Pittsburgh and I believe the second in Pennsylvania. And that sort of took me down a rabbit hole and I wanted to know everything else. Why'd you pick it in the first place? Well, I, I attended the school and I had a um, terrific experience and I think I realized it was remarkable later when I got to college and when I um, started working and I would, people would tell stories from growing up and I would always, it was sort of, I had to preface everything that, oh, one thing you have to know about my high school is we had professional ballet students. One thing you have to know about my high school is we had immigrants from all over the world. One thing you have to know about my high school is I was the only white student in this particular setting, and that was not something anybody related to. So I think when you're growing up, you think whatever you're doing is, is bland and uninteresting and that you're missing something. And it was years later that I thought, this is, this is something pretty remarkable. It's a story that should be told. Why do you go there? Why did I go there? Yeah, um, it, it was it was uh, it was the what I what I and my family believed. This was 20 years ago, of course, when I was picking a high school was the best option. That it was um, it had the international baccalaureate program, which was college caliber. You got college credit. Um, it had students from all over the city and all over the world, and in an era where people flee inner city public schools, there was a waiting list that there were people hoping that, you know, some would choose another school and they'd be able to get in. So, um, you know, I think in my adolescent years, it wasn't, it wasn't something I really questioned because from third grade on, most of my friends knew we're, we're going to Shenley and this is a, a school that people know about nationally, which, how were the classes they offered different than the, at other Pittsburgh public schools? Um, well, the International Baccalaureate program was only at Shenley. It wasn't at the other Pittsburgh public schools. That although it, IB is 
similar to the AP program in advanced BM, placement. Advanced placement, right? In being college caliber, Alder Dice and pretty much every school had it. But I think it was a situation, and you see this still in the district, um, and maybe in districts similar to Pittsburgh, where there is some school choice and not just one high school in a district where the a lot of the high achieving students or or families with high achieving students sort of aggregate at two or three schools and create very competitive uh, environments and, and cultures of ambition. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, I believe that's happened throughout the district's history and that's something that I, that, that, that this book actually really became a history of the district and a history of the city because everything that happened socially, politically, um, in terms of change happens in high school first, that everybody has to go to school. And there was no cyber option in those days. And especially uh, in terms of immigration and civil rights, that if you are middle age and you don't like a group of people or you are afraid of a change, you will avoid it. But in high school, everything sort of comes to a head. And because of where Shenley was, on the border of the Hill District, Oakland, you know, near Bloomfield, very multi-ethnic neighborhoods, really for over 100 years, that it was um, for a long time just very naturally diverse. And that uh, that early socialization, I think, changed a lot of students' lives. You said uh, where Shenley was, so it, it's not there anymore? Yeah, it's not. The building is still there at the big intersection of Bigelow Center. Um, it's another <laughs> street that escapes me now. Um, 4101 Bigelow is, is the address that the building is still there and will reopen soon as luxury apartments. But this, as a school, it was controversially closed in 2008. And the book devotes a chapter to that. I didn't think it should be more than that. There's some people who, you know, think that that could be its own book. But um, there was a lot of there was a lot of politics, uh, racially, economically. It the closing got attention in, in cities and places outside of Pittsburgh, and it dominated the media in Pittsburgh, which was significant because schools close every year, just the way population moves. It's Rust Belt City used to be half a million, now it's um, probably two thirds of that. So schools do close all the time. We don't have the population population that we had, but schools that are thriving don't normally close. Schools that people are waiting to get into don't normally close. And the school district said that the building needed millions of dollars repair in asbestos-related repairs. And uh, the parents who were probably unusually, many of the parents were unusually educated, had many professionals, people in politics, law, architecture, <laughs> contracting. So the parents really organized and poked holes in the district's data. And it was something that I don't think has really been seen, that I spoke with the superintendent at the time, Mark Roosevelt, who was really a, a uh, charismatic character and um, sort of feels like a character in the book, even though it's nonfiction. But um, that he said that, that that was really the last thing he expected. He thought that families would say, how could you have kept our students in this building where it might not be safe? It, it was the opposite, and they're saying the building isn't as unsafe as you are saying 
keep it open. And um, the I tried to be extremely, it, very fair in that chapter because I am a Shanley graduate and I was disappointed to see it closed. And a lot of, uh, in that debate of over the closing, a lot of Shanley graduates had been, I think, unfair. Um, the, the data, the data was not easy to ascertain and not easy to understand. And I think that's why sometimes the debate got very simplified. There were people on the pro-Shenley side who said there was a conspiracy to sell the building to UPMC or to Carnegie Mellon and it was all about money. And there were people on the other side who said, m maybe on the district side, who said the school was never as successful as Shenley proponents thought it was. And, it cost even more to repair than they think. So I, I did try to get to the bottom of that, and people can draw their own conclusions. But What kind of shape was it in academically and enrollment when the decision was made to close it? It was pretty large that um, in its last three decades, there were between 1,200 and 1,500 students, which is a large high school in this region, large for the Pittsburgh Public School District anyway, the, they were still um, sending many students to elite universities. There was still very diverse. There was still a, uh, a wait list. Um, may not have been as competitive admissions-wise as other times uh, to get in, but um, I think those are metrics by which this book, anyway, judges the health of the school. Someone else might have other metrics, but it was, it was certainly one of the most popular options for people who wanted their kids in a Pittsburgh high school, probably with Kappa and with Alderdice. So, um, and that's sort of another issue that's explored in that chapter is that Mark Roosevelt's idea was, I'm, I'm sort of trying to paraphrase and present his argument as, as fairly as I, as I can, that he said, well, if the Shenley building isn't viable anymore, um, he had initially planned to move the school and its diverse programs inside intact to another building and continue it there, but he decided to try something else, that he decided that um, there were multiple tracks in the building. There was uh, the IB, which, which I mentioned, which was very high achieving and sending kids to elite universities. And there were kids, when what was called the, the mainstream track, lack of a, um, of a uh, scholars program. Um, many who were poor, at risk, of color, had had a lot of exposure to trauma. All of, um, you know, some of the risk factors that usually use lead to low achievement in school. So they, those students could take IB classes if they chose, but many of uh, the students in that program weren't succeeding um, in that Mark Roosevelt thought, well, we'll put them all in their own school, and we'll put the IB program in, it, in its own school, and they'll be smaller, they'll be more specialized, students will get more attention. But the chief complaint from Shenley proponents was that this was essentially resegregation, whether it's explicitly racial, whether it's racial and sociological. But um, the thing that was really concerning to a lot of the uh, Shenley teachers and who had been architects of the school the way it had been was that by having these programs housed in the same building and by having div 
diverse groups of people that sometimes you have, they would have a student from a difficult background who would make friendships through play, through sports, through uh, elective courses, and say, I'm just as smart as John. He, he encouraged me to, to try his English class. I don't know if I could do it, but uh, I think I'm going to give it a try. That you have to sort of, uh, something can't seem so foreign as, as it sometimes does if, the, if that school's across town and you have to leave all your friends to, to take that chance. This was, uh, Mark Roosevelt was a descendant of Theodore Roosevelt? He was a descendant of Theodore, I believe he was the great-grandson. It, it, whatever's in the book is what's correct. And but. the idea to, to break up the school was his brainchild? I mean, it was, was his brainchild, was the guy. And, and I think, um, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I believe that his, my understanding of his argument was that this is what would best serve the Hill District population, that they were getting lost sort of within Shenley and that the success of IB was masking the lack of success in, the program was called Spartan Classics, it was mainstream, and there's, it was more complicated, it was more specialized than, than mainstream as I, as I get to in the book, but he thought if they go to their own school it could be a national model of how to deal with problems like um, poverty, single parent families, um, entering high school at a, at a lower reading level, those kinds of things, that he had studied those problems and seen how can we, how can we isolate and fix. And he thought that the university prep school, which, you know, became a descendant of Shenley and is still operating in the Upper Hill District, uh, would solve some of those problems. How is that, well, when did the breakup happen? So Shenley, the building in Oakland closed in 2008 that Mark Roosevelt said they can't stay there any longer, there's too much of an emergency, and that that fall, University Prep opened in the Upper Hill District, and then another year later, the IB School, which is now Obama Academy in East Liberty, would open, and the remaining Shenley students who had already begun Shenley were allowed to finish high school as Shenley, in name only, essentially. But so it's been almost 10 years since the Shenley building closed and the two successor schools began. How is that decision seen um, 10 years down the road? Is it a good idea, bad idea? Controversially, I, um, I guess it depends who you talk to. I, again, really did try to be fair. And something we really have to be conscientious of is there's a lot of emotion involved. And that's natural and that's fine. But when the decision was being debated, parents would say and Shelley proponents would say, the university prep school might have these problems and the Obama school might have these problems um, in a rhetorical sense to say, it will have these problems, so don't make this decision. But now that the decision is made, these are real living, breathing people, children there. And I think as a community, no matter how much we love Shenley or any other institution, we want to root for their success. So um, university prep certainly isn't perfect. Obama certainly isn't perfect. But as I was writing this, I, was, I wanted to be careful to say maybe university prep hasn't improved on the, from a data perspective on the results of the same population when they were at Shenley. So in that sense, the experiment 
has not been successful yet. But at the same time, I didn't want to demonize or criticize the staff and the students who were there now doing the best they can because the decision was 10 years ago. They didn't have anything to do with that. And, um, you know, you could blame administrators, you could blame the district for not giving it the support it needs. But When you were going there, uh, how many of the students came from the neighborhood and how many came from all around the city? That was um, a great question. It was hard to, I, you know, one interesting thing about that is the, the book is really very data heavy. I tried to get anything from the district I could. And there, it's interesting the difference between a person's perception when they were 16 years old and what the data reflected. So, um, you know, someone might tell me in an interview that they graduated from Chenley in 1960 and it was 50-50 black and white. And I have the enrollment data and it was 65-35. And it's interesting, and I won't tell them there, I don't, certainly don't think they're lying, it's just someone's perception years later. So um, I wasn't able to find what the data really was, but it, it seemed like um, uh, maybe 55 to 60% were from the neighborhood and the rest were, which is still a, a, an enormous amount of people traveling, especially, we forget how early high school begins. So if you're from Mount Washington, if you're from the West End, what time you have to get on a bus to get to Oakland. Yeah, when, uh, if you lived in the area when you went, uh, if you lived in the Hill area right. in the years you went, would you automatically go you to Shinley? automatically And go, then so. there was a waiting list for the... Right, so uh, a, a word that pops up throughout the book is called a feeder school or a feeder district, meaning if you live on Elm Street, you are naturally in the district for this elementary school, this middle school, and this high school. You don't have to do anything, you'll just be enrolled. Whereas magnet schools, there is a process. There used to be a there used to be a waiting list. I mean, sorry, there used to be a um, first come first serve magnet enrollment, and that people parent and they got so popular. And of course, you know, parents would tell each other, if you're not in this program or that program, your kid will have a hard time, or your kid will be wanting somehow. So people started to line up early what you know would be it was usually at Risenstein middle school in, in Shadyside and then p other people saw others lining up so they got in line and they got in line and one year the line started six days early and my mother was actually in that line switching off and on with my father and some of our neighbors and round the clock for six days yeah it, what was really interesting was when I researched the book that I was a newspaper archive was, was really helpful with that. So it was a national story, an AP story. It ran in the LA Times about they're lining up in Pittsburgh because these schools are so good. And there was a quote from my mother. And <laughs> she had forgotten about that. And, um, but it eventually, you know, it, it was too cold, that it really felt unfair, that it benefited parents who could get away from their job for a few hours, which was a uh, sort of class bifurcation problem. So eventually the the district pivoted to a lottery system, which was more fair. But the way I got in was once you got in at the elementary level, you followed these magnet, these specialized curricula. So mine was foreign language based. So once I was in it from grade school on, I could continue into Shenley unless I opted out. Was your grade school in your neighborhood? No, none of my schools were in my neighborhood. And um, at the time, I didn't think about that at all. I didn't know what a neighborhood was. I just was doing what my parents told me to do, but uh, I think none of the 
none of the kids on my street went, whether they went to public or private schools, went to the schools in the neighborhood. So it didn't seem unusual for me. And it was also, at the time you don't appreciate this, but it was, it was a great way to understand different kinds of people because you're just trying to be a kid and trying to fit in. And um, subconsciously kids from more difficult backgrounds than myself or just very different backgrounds than myself um, trying to understand what they're, what they're going through. When did Chanley become a magnet school? It's a great question. So in, I'll, I'll back up a little bit because some context is necessary. So every school in Pittsburgh and mostly the United States had been a, a, a neighborhood, what they call a comprehensive school. It has all your major academics. It's not specialized in any way. It's not vocationally focused. And all these vocational schools are supposed to be ostensibly equal. And in the 1960s, after the Martin Luther King assassination, the, the riots in the Hill District um, poured into Shenley in some way. There was an actual violence at Shenley, but a lot of people, both black and white, felt uncomfortable, feared a, a race-based incident because of the hostility. And I talked to a white alumnus who was a senior when the riots happened, and he was from Bloomfield, and he would hitchhike across the Bloomfield Bridge to school every day. And the Monday, the, the riots started on a Friday, and the next Monday that all the kids on his street said, are you crazy going to school? We're not going to school again this year or for a couple of days. And there was that fear. So that fear became generational, and within within maybe three or five years, Shenley lost most of its, not only its white population, but its middle-class black population, that if you had the means to go to either pay for a private school or could politic your way into uh, another viable city public school that wasn't in your district, people did that. And so what the students who were left at Shenley were, um, not as high achieving, um, and that there was a, it was predominantly black, it was predominantly poor, and it gave it a stigma, and. Um, you refer to it as having a toxic reputation. It had a toxic that reputation time. that if you asked, I think this is true of probably schools and, and different maybe neighborhoods now that could ask someone, hey, do you wanna go to this place? And they would say, are you crazy? That's a, that's a rough, area to bad school and you would say well have you been and the people aren't going to give something a chance because the reputation is so rough but it this phenomenon at Chenley dovetailed with the national trend of districts around the country in the 1970s trying to accommodate the brown versus board mandate especially in the north where it was de facto segregation and not de jour so that the de facto segregation means that this neighborhood's all white, this neighborhood's all black, and there were very few places in the United States where people, the race and class, uh, uh, bled together in, in a single geographic area. So that schools like Alderdice and then Peabody were very high achieving, and schools like Fifth Avenue and the Lower Hill and um, Shenley and the Upper Hill were were not well resourced. So when when uh, Shenley was having those problems, how did they attract teachers? 
Well, well, initially teachers didn't want to be there, and that's still something that I, I believe happens. I know friends, either some of my former teachers or friends from my generation who have become teachers, that the schools that you would want to send your child to were the schools that teachers want to teach at, and and vice versa, and that um, that that was also a problem, but. So to overcome this integration mandate, and the, the Pittsburgh had been in violation for almost 10 or 12 years by the time that, of the desegregation order. So that Harrisburg had said, um, the state government came up with something called the PHRC, Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and they had the legal power to do whatever they wanted, or whatever they had to do to uh, make sure schools were had some racial balance, and that sometimes they would move these geographic boundaries instead of saying you're you live in Point Breeze, your school is Linden. Now you will go to a school a little further away, but it'll be a little more balanced. And they had some success with that, but largely because of local politics, that there was a lot of resistance. That the the South Hills the areas in the north side, I, I don't want to single anyone out because, you know, the East End as well, where there was a lot of, um, people didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm racist, I don't want to send my child to an integrated school, but they used code words about neighborhood autonomy and neighborhood schools and my children are small, I don't want them to go far away. So um, busing, which was, you know, the only way to get the kids from one area into another area, uh, you know, there was a lot of, there was violence in Boston, there was violence in Charlotte. So in Pittsburgh, they came up with magnet programs, I believe it was 1979, maybe a, a year or two earlier, that this was a way to give families a choice. Let's say, let's say if we can move, let's see if we can move the numbers a little bit in the right direction without forcing anyone to do anything they don't want to do. How was the decision to turn it into a magnet school received by the families that were going to Shenley at the time? Um, not, not well for, for many of them. So Shenley, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around, but uh, yeah, the, the, the big experiment of, of the several experiments in this book were the 1983 Shenley's makeover because although there were some magnets at schools across the city, Shenley really wasn't attracting students outside the district, outside its feeder area, and even within it. And the superintendent, whose name was Dick Wallace, who came from the Boston area, who, you know, where they had many problems and he, that he didn't want to replicate, um, that he had had the idea for a teacher training center meaning that teachers have a, a mini sabbatical for a quarter or a semester. They come to another school, they do workshops, they do trainings, they learn something in the morning, they practice it on a class in the afternoon, uh, learning the freshest and beth best teaching methods, they you know, debrief with their colleagues. And this is something that Mr. Wallace had done at the elementary and middle school levels at his previous jobs, and it had just been a big hit. Teachers received it well, and um, the quality of instruction actually improved. It wasn't just a, a time for teachers to hang out with each other. So he said, I, I wanted to try this in an active 
high school environment, not during the summer, but during an active school year. And Shenley seemed like the perfect place because it solves multiple problems, that it improves the quality of instruction because teachers had to come throughout the district and cycle in. So they'd be there for a while. And so they would be there. I believe school. it ended up being a quarter um, of, the, of the academic year. But that Oakland is centralized. It was close to the Board of Education building where the superintendent would be. Um, and that, but the, and that it would sort of help improve Shenley's brand and help voluntarily integrate because Shenley had had a magnet in the 70s and it wasn't very successful. So with the teacher center, they also brought in the IB magnet, which they hadn't had before, and a high technology magnet, which was more academic than vocational. There was a lot of computer related things, which were pretty cutting edge in the 80s. So in the in 1983, every teacher, and many had been there for decades, was asked, at, at Shenley was asked to reapply for their job, saying, if you want to stay at Shenley, you have to jump through all these hoops because we're going to put, a get, put together a, essentially a teaching all-star team. And if you don't want to stay, that's, that's fine. You'll be reassigned. They would still be teachers in the district. But because Shenley wasn't a popular destination that Mr. Wallace actively recruited some teachers from outside that he knew. There was a woman named Carol Dias who had been, she'd been the state teacher of the year in 1980 and she was very happy at Langley. She had gone to school there, she'd been teaching there. She, she made some joke that there's gonna be a statue of me there. I'm gonna spend my whole career there at Langley and she didn't wanna leave. She didn't wanna to go to Shenley and that uh, Dick, <laughs> she had some negotiating leverage but she, ended up going because at the superintendent's insistence and um, 16 of Shenley's probably 80 teachers from 83 to 84 carried over and um, there was some resentment and there was some nervousness that will this work will anyone show up am I are we doing all this for nothing that it's almost a complete turnover of it's com faculty. almost a complete turnover and so the ones the teachers that were retained were believed to be the elite of, of the building and the rest were. So um, that students uh, who straddled both eras, who'd been there in the complete neighborhood era and then in the magnet era, uh, said that they did notice a change, a, a positive change and an improvement, but it didn't immediately attract lots of magnet students because that's something that takes time and it takes word of mouth. And you sort of have to know somebody who was willing to send their own child there before you would believe them. So they would recruit maybe, I don't know, 15 to 35 new students a year. I could have that number way off because there was a mandate that if you don't improve your racial balance, that that's the state said this to Shenley by, I believe it was supposed to be 115 each year. I'm not sure if they met that, that after three years, the state could come in and merge it with another high school or disband it. and some people were concerned that that's what would happen, but um, it, by, by six or seven years, the school was, was pretty popular, organic, or, you know, without any forced methods, is what I'm saying. Is this your first book? It is my first book. You, did I read it right that you did 150 interviews with former students? I did 150 interviews, and that was um, the process, I would say, is, was really amazing and, and gratifying because, um, I didn't necessarily plan to 
be sitting here with you four and a half years ago when I started. I thought maybe this will be a little self-published thing. It'll sit on the uh, the history, local history section of the library. And I was always interested in history and local history, and I loved the school. So I thought there's some questions I want to have answered. I'm going to do some research, and I was looking up. Uh, details of the construction and how much it cost and really just things that interest me and I I hadn't really planned to engage anyone else and I realized there were some questions I couldn't answer so I, I emailed a former teacher and said do you know the answer to this question and they emailed a teacher and they, and they emailed a teacher and I did an interview and it was nice and then um, they said well if you want to know more about this you've got to talk to so-and-so so I did, I probably did six in six months and I was, you know, working full time and I'm not a academic and um, progress was going pretty slowly and then I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, these interviews are really, every interview answers one question and raises ten more and it's this really exciting kind of scavenger hunt and I really like connecting with these people and, you know, the school wasn't great because it was a hundred years old and because it was People had believed it was the first million dollar high school in the United States, which was it's what they said when I was there. But through my research, I had to bust that myth. Philadelphia Central was older and more than a million dollars. But said it wasn't great because of those things. It was great because of its people and that I thought I'm going in the totally wrong direction. I should talk to everyone I can from every era of every background and really try to make sure that it's not a narrative that reflects me as a 30-something white middle-class male that I talked to a, a man, my, one of my favorite interviews, a man who was class of 1932 and I, I tracked him down somehow and I had an address but I didn't know if he was alive and I, I sent an actual letter to his house saying this is who I am and this is what I'm trying to do and if you're willing to talk to me and I thought it might come back return to sender and I got a phone call and it was an older person's voice, and he said, is this Jake? I'm, I'm ready for my interview. And uh, he said, sorry, I would have called yesterday, but it was my 101st birthday. So I, uh, I wasn't really a good time for me to talk when he called, but when someone's 101, you really have to make time for them. So that was, he was really uh, delightful to talk to, but an interesting thing was that I was trying to confine my questions to related to his, his experience of the school. And he wandered from that a good bit, but I thought, you know, if you're gonna tell me about life in 1927, I'm just gonna listen because no one else is gonna be able to do that. So I really tried to get as much diversity of perspective as I could, but. What was public education like when he went to school? Oh, that's a great question that he, well, he said there was corporal punishment. Um, he said there was prayer in classroom every day. And he said those things so matter-of-factly and so non-controversially as if, you know, from the time you're six to the time you're 18, those, that's just what happens every day. And then 50 years later, those methods are questioned. So it was, it was especially interesting to me not just that those things happened to him, but that, you know, he didn't think anything of it. It sounded like students were a lot more independent back then. I mean, just people were. That He said during the Depression, parents didn't really have time to parent. They had to be working multiple jobs and you had to be working multiple jobs. I asked him, I, I really asked ev ev any, everyone, 
what activities that they were involved in because those kinds of things endear a person to an institution. And he said, I, I had to have four jobs. I, there was no time for that. So it really just was a different world. Where did the name Shenley come from? It comes from Mary Shenley, who um, pretty much everything in Pittsburgh is named Shenley, Shenley Park, Shenley Plaza, Shenley, I don't know if Shenley PA is named for Shenley, but Mary Shenley, but she was um, a benefactress that she, her grandfathers were uh, Revolutionary War heroes and she, because of her mother and brother died, that she was the heir to maybe a third of the land in Allegheny County by the time she was 10 years old. And towards the end of her life, she gave it away. And the, the part of Oakland where Shenley High School is, which is a lot of people call Shenley Farms, from maybe St. Paul Cathedral to the top of the Lower Hill, um, to the bottom of the Lower Hill, where the School for the Blind is, was all just farmland. And that she had intentionally not sold it, not uh, leased it, so that it would, so that its value would increase. And this made her pretty unpopular because the, the city was swarming with immigrants. There wasn't anywhere to live. And she did have other lands that were, were slums. So she was um, this reviled billionaire during her lifetime. But it, wa it was after she died that the, the school acquired the land and named it ostensibly after the farmland in the neighborhood because the neighborhood was considered this up and coming it was going to be high-end houses, high-end civic monuments, as it still is. You said that the story of Shenley starts in 1855, I think it is, with Central High School. That's right. If you had attended Central High School in 1855, what would the experience have been like? Um, first, I want to say that even creating Shenley, or Central High School was, was an ordeal. That um, I want to read what you said here. You said, uh, its mere creation angered taxpayers who viewed a high school in an industrial city as a public waste. They did, and that was, uh, that really knocked me off my feet when I first, because I think we see things through our own worldview and it's uh, hard to adjust. There's, there's always school, there's always public school. Um, everyone tells you you have to go, and the fact that people were clamoring to go and taxpayers thought it was a waste is, you know, was baffling to me at first, but it made sense economically that most families, once you were, their children were 11, 12, 13, they needed you generating income in some way because there was really no middle class, that it was feast or famine. And, um, but Philadelphia had had a high school for probably 20 years by the 1850s. Boston, New York City had had public high schools. Um, there were 80 cities with, with, a, with a public high school when, um, sorry, although the, the figure is in the book, I believe it was 80 cities. Um, but the point is that cities much smaller and less cosmopolitan than Pittsburgh had a public high school and Pittsburgh did not. So that was a, a point of contention for the pro high school crowd. But the state legislature mandated it. And so Central would open in 1855 and it was actually, right up here in downtown on Smithfield Street. Oh, it uh, wasn't located where? No, they, initially they just rented rooms because they didn't think it was going to last. And nobody really had a concept of what a high school would be or what it would look like. And um, What kind of classes did they take? Oh, there's a, 
I, I listed a few of the, the more odd offerings in, in the beginning of the book, but something called urinography, which I believe is map making. Um, there was a lot of the classics, Virgil's, Aenid. Um, you said the teachers were called professor. Teachers were professors. Latin grammar was a, you know, because you can't, don't, not just learning Latin, that you would, uh, you would need to know the grammar. And I think that, that the, those kinds of offerings um, were, were part of what turned a lot of people off, that they would say, what is possibly useful about this? Um, I don't want to pay for my child or any other, anyone else's when we're an industrial city and all you really need to do is learn how to make steel or iron or lay brick. So, um, but the teachers were professors that it was, um, it was called the People's College. It was, it was extremely academic and that it not, it, not just anyone could go the way we think of a public high school now that you had to pass an entrance exam. So it's hard to say how exclusive it was in the sense that, you know, you or I could look at the entrance exam and say, well, these aren't things they taught anymore by the time we were in school or you and I are adults and don't know if an eighth grader should, <laughs> should be able to answer those questions. But the first year, the, the, the pass rate was a little over 50%, but, but well under 60 or 70. So it gives you a sense of um, there were certainly people excluded who would have wanted to go. And you said the graduation, uh, first graduating class was three students. First graduating class was three students, which is significant because 114 started. So that enough people, either their parents needed more money or they weren't happy with the curriculum, that they weren't able to finish the four-year course. And that when they, the city made a big event out of the first commencement with speeches and songs in a big hall downtown. And the, but the newspapers um, really ridiculed the, the policy behind this and said, this is what we've been paying for. Three students now have expenses, expensive pieces of sheepskin or whatever that they put the diploma on. And that, again, college wasn't also seen as necessary back then. Um, but things, things would change that they added, Central added vocational courses after the Civil War and it became extremely popular. There was a lot of um, business math, bookkeeping. There was a normal school or a teacher's college for, for women so those uh, programs were very popular. And then between the Civil War and the turn of the century, the academic program got more popular too because work became less accessible for teenagers and college became more realistic. So, um, but because it was the only high school in the city and in, for the surrounding area for the most part, because they were able to attract top teaching talent that you know, we didn't have the university industrial complex we have now. There weren't universities everywhere that were paying well that had tenure. So Central would actually poach college professors to say, do you want to make more money and a stable rate? And, and they had pensions. So Willa Cather, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, had moved to Pittsburgh at the turn of the century and one of the thing she did to make money while she wrote was teaching at Central. And some of her short stories are, are based there. So it was, it was a pretty remarkable place. And then by, you know, once they'd been open for 50 years, I believe there was a retrospective that was published. And, you know, the judges, doctors, dentists, clergy of the city 
if they had grown up in Pittsburgh, they had gone to Central because there was really no, it didn't have a peer that anyone who was anyone, every judge had gone to Central. When did they decide to give, give them their own building? So after the Civil War, when the, the enrollment really exploded, that uh, the principal campaigned for uh, the school to have its own building. And the cost was seen as enormous at the time, but as any new service the government provides. But um, it was in the Lower Hill District. It's right um, north of the old Civic Arena site. You'll see the, the, there's the Conley Vocational Center still stands, and then there's the Boy Scouts headquarters. And there's a little plot between those two, and it would have been about there. So you could see it from Penn Station, you know, down in the Strip District. It was high on the hill. Um, it, it had distinctive twin towers. Architecturally, it was very modern and, and ornate for, for, for the time. And it was, um, that, that day was very different than, than the day it opened, even though it was only a decade or so later, because they said 10,000 school children marched to the site to lay the cornerstone and sang songs and said, you know, Pittsburgh was celebrating public education then and saying we deserve a, a palace. When did they build the building that they were in for so long? The Shanley building? Yeah. So uh, that, that... Uh, Is that when they became Shanley? That's when, when they, they became Shanley. That so, and, that, and, that, and that marked another policy change that was an experiment in itself because that even though other high schools started to open in other sections of the city, those were primarily for either trades or people who just couldn't get downtown. That um, they were too isolated to make education more accessible and there was a new superintendent in, I believe it was 1912, that he, there was a quote that he said, a great central high school, meaning one flagship school that's superior to the others, in a city is as, makes as much sense as one central bathroom that um, he wanted to move to the comprehensive school. And another issue was um, inequity, that even within Central, Central had a vocational department and a normal department, and that they weren't treated as well. When the Central building got too full, they sent the vocational students to a former elementary school, and they sent the normal students to a formal, you know, a smaller, more dilapidated building, and they kept the academic program in the main building, and that these students didn't have access to each other. And there's a parallel between the university prep school and the Obama school in this, um, in this century, in that a lot of times students are in these schools because of their socialization, which is not something they can help. And when you separate them by track and put them on separate campuses and don't let them meet each other, it's hard for, it's hard for students to be aspirational outside of their own worldview. When did it integrate? The programs integrated when Shenley opened. So um, Central ceased uh, in 1916, and they had been looking for a replacement for almost 20 years, and there was some real estate issues that there was a lot of graft in the school board and people would, they, they purchased a couple of plots probably because someone on the school board, there seems to be evidence, was connected to that landowner and then they said, why are we putting the building here? So they, 
It jumped around the East End a few times, but this is around the time that the Shenley Farms area is finally getting developed after being farmland. And Shenley Park has just opened, the Carnegie Museum and libraries have just opened, Carnegie, what, what is now Carnegie Mellon was in that area. So this seemed like the perfect place to have, it was called it the Scholarly Corridor. So that they got, they did finally get the property that the building still is now. The, the building opened in September 1916 and the man who would be the first principal, his name was James Noble Rule was very, from a philosophical, philosophical perspective, into the comprehensive school and into this equity and saying that academic students will have to take some vocational course, but everybody will get an academic diploma. There's no more of this segregation from a curricular perspective. And so Shenley got off on this egalitarian foot. And it still drew from all over the city? It didn't, it, it no longer drew from all over the city. Well, it wasn't supposed to because with by 19, in the 10 years after Shenley opened, there was essentially a comprehensive neighborhood school in every part of the city. So you would have to travel further to go to Shenley, but yes, that because it would have made sense from how I saw it to take all these uh, great teachers or professors from Central and sprinkle them around the city and have some equity and say, you know, you're not gonna put all the best teachers in, in, in one building, but they didn't. They were, it was essentially Central renamed in its first few decades. So, you know, I found some primary sources, you know, usually writings of the people who are deceased. People from Garfield, people from Point Breeze, people from, uh, I guess Allegheny City was now the north side, but, um, and that Allegheny had, was seen as superior and more sophisticated than the city, but people were, paying tuition and to come to Pittsburgh City Schools. And, and people were traveling far to go to Shenley because it had this great reputation. And actually a Nobel Prize winner, Cl Clifford Scholl, um, he went there in the, I believe, early 30s. And he was from Hayes and Alderdice would have been closer. And he said it took 45 minutes each way on a streetcar, but the a professor inspired him who had a PhD, you can't imagine, a high school teacher with a PhD now to, to specialize in physics, and he won the Nobel Prize in physics. You say, uh, you, you list some uh, of your prominent alumnus, alumni in there, Andy Warhol, Derek Bell, Bruno Sammartino, professional right. wrestler, Clifford Schull, Mark, Maurice Lucas, Vivian Reed, Bob Prince, the uh, sports announcer. Um, were you able to get in touch with Prominent alumnus? Alumni, I I, I, I wasn't. I, I, anybody who was living, I was, I was happy to talk to. Um, but no, I, I, I wasn't able to talk to any of those people. But I, I tried to take a, an angle with the book where, because Shenley really had the, the hope of equity, whether that was um, always actualized or not, that I thought, I don't want sports to dominate the book. I don't want celebrities to dominate the book. I want regular people and regular stories because those are the, I mean, that's how you think of high school. The football players can do what they want. The class president can do what they want. Um, so that there is a section for those in the, in the appendices. But um, throughout most of the book, I mo mostly focused on 
what I considered regular people. Although sometimes I'd become aware of, through my research, an extraordinary situation, and I would try to track that person down, and sometimes it would lead to a great conversation. You say that although the majority of students were white until the 1960s, students elected black, Jewish, and female class presidents by 1947. Yeah, so well, that's what really interested me because, of course, I couldn't talk to, other than the 101-year-old, most of the people attended in the 1950s that I spoke to. In the 1950s or more recently, so you really have to learn things sociologically from those earlier eras um, by inference, and you know they had school plays, sports, um, class presidents, and um, normally there were Anglo-Saxon males and um, who were the presidents. And I started to realize that there would be black, Jewish, and female class presidents um, long before that those groups had any significant numbers. So I thought that that was pretty telling because in order for those people to achieve those things, you have to have white students voting for a black person or Gentile students voting for a Jewish person. Um, and this is in the 30s and 40s when, um, you know, in other parts of the country, they weren't even allowed in the same building. Did, did female students have opportunities at Shanley they didn't have generally? It's, it's hard to say. Um, in the 1940s, female students uh, started to dominate student government, but uh, that was partially because um, the war created a, World War II created a industrial labor shortage. So every high school in Pittsburgh and maybe throughout the country, but I know Pittsburgh for sure, had probably a 10% female enrollment advantage. And um, so women started to, or young women started to have more opportunities there. But I did find examples of, of sexism um, early on, but. I do have to read this one thing before we run out of time. 1935, two students wrote to Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini expressing their sympathy and admiration of his conduct in Africa. A thankful reply from Il Duce's secretary was printed in the Triangle, the newspaper. Yeah. that. Um, I, I went through every single school paper that I could find and, you know, at the time it might not have been as big of a deal. This is before World War II, but the things that you would find that would later be significant or, you know, even, even the famous alumni who, um, whether it's Andy Warhol or Bruno San Martino, you see a, a clip of their name in the newspaper and nobody knows who they would grow up to be, but they were just a normal kid at that time. How far back did the school newspaper go? The school newspaper started in um, 1919. What's it like to read a 1919 high school newspaper? Oh, well, I, I might be kind of a nerd, but I thought it was pretty fun. That I, the thing that really blew my mind was it, it really showed me how similar people are, whether there's 100 years or there's economics or race in between you. Kids and people essentially want the same thing. They want to be loved, they want to be happy, they want to have opportunities, and um, probably think high school is, is a, a fascinating sort of petri dish for all these things to ferment in because um, things, aren't, things aren't very complicated, that the students are pretty, teenagers are, are pretty much like, you know, I imagine you and I were. 
One, one more story I want to read is uh, Josh Gibson Sr. when his son was being bullied. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so Josh Gibson of the, of the uh, Homestead Grays was uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't know how well known he would have been outside of to, to white students because he was a Negro League superstar, but um, I don't know how many white students would have followed the Negro Leagues. But his son, Josh Gibson Jr., who was a great ball baseball player as well, attended Chenley. And Josh Sr. was always on the road. So when he came back, asked the grandmother how things were because the grandmother was raising him. And she said, oh, he's being bullied. So Josh Sr. storms into the cafeteria, sees his son surrounded by the bullies, flips over a table, screams at everybody, and just really creates this scene. And this is as told by the son um, 50 years later. But I think that's pretty remarkable that someone of his stature is, is, is doing a basic, well, I don't know if you call it a parenting duty, and how many people recognized him and how many didn't. And, and you quote him as saying, uh, the, the guys that was hassling me, they ran out of the cafeteria. Yeah, that was the end of that. So when you went through this whole process, do you perceive your high school differently than you started off? I do. I, um, I, it, it was more remarkable in some ways than I, I mean, factually, there were just things I didn't know. Uh, more remarkable than I had realized, but in, in another sense, I think I have toned down some of the exceptionalism because I think um, if we say that one thing is better than another thing because it's Shenley or because it's American or because it's from Pittsburgh, I think we're missing a bigger part of the story. And um, it, it, it got to be easier to see that uh, with more perspective as I look back. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Jake Orosik. He is the author of The Shenley Experiment, A Social History of Pittsburgh's First Public High School. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.